Welcome to the Middle Tech Podcast, this region's leading business podcast, shining a light on technology, entrepreneurship, and the future of business in Kentucky and beyond. Our goal is to advance the ecosystem by bringing attention to the founders, changemakers, innovators, and those supporting them. Middle Tech's content can be found on your favorite podcast streaming app, social channels, and YouTube. We encourage you to follow and participate in the conversation. Let's discuss and build the future. Welcome back to the Middle Tech Podcast. You've got Logan Jones here with Evan Knowles, and we have an awesome guest here today that is going to talk a lot about the future of work, remote work, and how companies should be adapting to the future now that we've seen this huge change that COVID has kind of caused. So we got to sit down with Steve Cadigan today. Steve has a pretty impressive background. He was the first chief of HR at LinkedIn. Uh, He is an advisor to multiple startups, and most recently, he has actually just published a book called Workquake, which dives into the topic of remote work and the future of work. Uh, So we got to have a really deep and great conversation with him about the future of work. And this is one that is especially important to the state of Kentucky. Those of you that follow me on LinkedIn might have seen that I got to talk on a panel about the future of remote work in Kentucky. Kentucky is really trying to invest in that right now. We see a future in that here in this state. Um, So if you're a part of building up the future of remote work here in Kentucky, this is an episode you're definitely going to want to pay attention to. Yeah. And to get people just excited about what you're about to hear, the biggest companies in the world are recruiting Steve to speak to their employees, to speak to their HR departments, because the insight he has right now is very unique. He's been in the HR world for so many years at some of the most influential companies in the world. And, you know, he's being flown around the world and is presenting in front of the world's biggest companies on the subject he's going to talk about on this podcast. So it's not one you're going to want to miss. So I encourage you to take a listen and learn about, you know, where work is heading into the future because it's changed just over the last several months more than it's changed probably in the last 20 years. And so it's just something that we all need to be paying attention to, especially everybody that wants to start their own business. So I encourage you to listen to this one. Yeah. And before we dive in, we just want to get a quick word from our sponsors. We hope you guys enjoy the episode. This episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Land Betterment. Land Betterment is doing some incredible work throughout Appalachia and Eastern Kentucky as they are taking abandoned strip mines and putting sustainable businesses in their place. These businesses not only provide a useful repurposing of the land, but they also provide great jobs to replace the mining jobs that were lost when the mine was shut down. To learn more about Land Betterment, you can listen to our interview with their founders, Mark Jensen and Kirk Taylor, on episode 97, or visit their website at landbetterment.com. We're also sponsored by Airwing Ventures. Airwing helps determined entrepreneurs seeking resources to grow with capital and connections in order to build successful companies and impactful legacies. They're all about high growth companies, high growth careers, and high growth communities. I've personally known Dan Beldy for about four years now, and I've seen the work he's been doing in the community, and we should all feel very blessed and grateful that a VC like himself is here in Kentucky. I encourage you to connect with Airwing and learn more. Let's all grow this state together. You can reach out to Dan at info at airwing.vc or dan at airwing.vc. And their website is www.airwing.vc.
right, welcome back to the Mill Tech Podcast. You've got Evan Knowles and Logan Jones here. I feel like I know the person that we are about to interview here. Uh, my good buddy, Shane Howard, has been helping him grow his brand and help him reach more people. He's got a lot to talk about. He's got a lot of expertise that the world is dying for and thirsting for right now. So we're looking forward to sharing his perspective with our listeners. His name is Steve Cadigan. He was LinkedIn's first chief HR officer, which is really cool to say. If you think about LinkedIn and what they've done to the workplace and what they've done to recruiting and just social media around professionalism, uh, it's really cool to have their first chief of HR on our podcast. He's also a talent hacker, and he's hmm. an advisor to many high-growth startups, which is really exciting. So, Steve, thanks for joining. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to the conversation today. Yeah. So before we get into anything related to what's going on out there in the place of you know work and employment and the whole new reality, you know, after COVID and going into the future, let's talk about you know where you've gotten your experience from and your background. So start start with you know where you're from and your education. We'll go from there. Okay. Well, let's see. Uh, I'm from lots of places. My parents were uh, wanderers, I guess. We uh, I grew up well. I was raised in a combination of St. Louis, Missouri, and uh, Westville, Natal, South Africa. Uh, so I had a childhood of uh, lots of different places. We got kicked out when I was seven from South Africa and settled on the East Coast. So probably most of my formative education was in Connecticut and sort of working class part of Connecticut called Danbury. Uh, went to school there, graduated with a history degree. Didn't know what I wanted to do going into college. Did not know, what, knew even less what I wanted to do when I graduated. Uh, but I knew that I had uh, someone I was in love with, and she was moving to California. So that's how I landed in California. And I've been mostly here since the mid-'80s when I finished college. And I had two-year stint in Singapore and a uh, four-year stint in British Columbia. So I had a chance to work in, in lots of different places. Uh, so it's a little little bit of my sort of where I'm from and, and places that I've been. I don't know if you want to get into the industries I've worked in, but that's sort of a good start. Yeah, for sure. And just summarize, you know, your professional background. You don't have to go through everything, but just kind of if you were to summarize real quickly for somebody that's listening, your professional sure. background, how would you do it? Yeah, I stumbled pretty early in my in my life to understanding that I really love the art of uh, helping organizations be better. And human resources was a, a place I found because I loved recruiting. And uh, so I worked in fashion, insurance, semiconductor, uh, got into Silicon Valley when it was really booming in the mid-90s and uh, been in a bunch of different uh, companies there, been in the video game industry for a while, electronic arts. And as you mentioned, I was the first chief HR officer uh, at LinkedIn. For me, that was just a, a nirvana role because you're practicing your craft of human resource leadership. But you're also, because their main product was a recruiting product, you're a product advisor and you're a, a sales champion. So, because people, they were selling to my peers around the world, the HR leaders and so forth. So, but that was my first dipping my toe into the quote unquote entrepreneurial world, if you were. I was a big company refugee, mainly worked in big businesses before LinkedIn. And, and, and it doesn't sound like uh, it's true, but in retrospect, I look back and my parents are like, you're going to go work for Link, what? Like you've got this really good career with these big companies that are safe and well-known and respected. What do you want to go to this company that might not make it? And I didn't know. It was not a layup. It wasn't a for sure thing. At the time, LinkedIn was six years old, 400 employees. They're on their third CEO. And I was the first hire of that CEO. Uh, that was Jeff Weiner. 
And over the course of the four years, which felt like 20, that I was at LinkedIn, we went from 400 to 4,000. We went from two offices to 17 and from employees in two countries to employees in 26 countries. Made every mistake that you can possibly think of. Uh, And the funny thing is, and I'll turn it over to you, I walked into LinkedIn thinking, well, how hard can this be to start a new business or to start a new HR organization? Because I'd been in big organizations before. And I've seen lots of mistakes. So I thought, how hard is it going to be to sort of build a company? And it turns out it's really hard. And I'd never built HR from nothing. I've never built the talent strategy from nothing. So it was quite a journey. Yeah. And in your book, you talked about, you know, you came to a realization that there was something broken about the relationship between employees and employers when you were transitioning from EA to LinkedIn. And I want to talk about just before we get into the COVID and what's happening now, what's going on in the future, what did you start to notice before COVID even happened? What was going on in the workplace that you just weren't sitting, well, it wasn't sitting right with you? Yeah, well, thanks. Right. I guess we haven't mentioned that. I did just publish a book in August called Workwake, um, super excited around the future of work and trying to build a better future of work. But I think over the last probably 20 years, what I've seen is something that didn't make sense. Candidates have more information to make better choices on where to go work than ever. And companies know more about candidates than any point. So why is everyone leaving faster? And and the trend of turnover has been accelerating in the last 20 years. People are just staying in companies less time than ever. In the U.S. in particular, in the last six years, uh, we've seen a movement from about five, a median tenure of five years for knowledge workers, uh, white-collar professionals, down to four. And in the demographic of 25 to 35-year-olds, that's down to 2.8. So, uh, you know, sitting there looking at this data going, this doesn't make sense. People have best the best information they've ever had. Why is disengagement going up, according to Gallup, who does all these engagement polls? Why are people unhappier? Why is job satisfaction declining and people leaving faster when arguably we should be having the most intelligent choices of our career? So... That led me to sort of say, something doesn't feel right here, as well as a number of my own anecdotal experiences, which I cover in the book, which are just like, we're not having honest conversations about work. And I wanted to try to move that conversation to a better place. So right when COVID hits, that's when everything kind of hits the fan, per se. Everyone is scrambling to try and figure out, you know, what is this new paradigm that we have to adjust to as everyone starts going remote? What are some of the trends you saw that you were seeing pre-COVID start to get accelerated once COVID hit? What are some of those things that you kind of knew were going to come, but were accelerated by COVID? People leaving companies faster. So the people we've seen in the last three months, is as of the date that we're recording this, June, July, August of 2021, we've seen the highest number of voluntary resignations since we've been measuring it. We've seen the highest number of startups founded since we've been tracking startups being founded, which is super cool. Right. And that's another, you know, overlay that was growing in awareness prior to the pandemic, which is the gig economy platforms that allow people to earn a living or make a living through multiple platforms are proliferating. So I don't I have more choices on how to earn a living than working for somebody else. And that's pretty cool. And so the pandemic just super accelerated all that, you know, like to a massive degree. And, and then you overlay uh, lots of new concerns on top of that. And the, the way I try to frame it in my book is what's really uncomfortable in the world of work going into the pandemic was both parties had limited view with certainty into the future. What skills do I need? 
What is my industry safe from disruption from some unicorn? Uh, what skills do I need to hire? What skills do I need to build as an individual? Both parties are feeling this growing tension because it's been proven that the shelf life value of a technical skill, a hard skill, has been declining. It used to be about 50 years and now, and this feels really uncomfortable and unsatisfying for a lot of people like, wait, 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 I was told I go study something, double down, find my career track, I'm good. And now I've got to learn new stuff, maybe pivot into a new career path if I chose something like banking, oopsie. Um, then, you know, I've got to go into fintech and I don't know anything about fintech. So a lot of those are the things that really were accelerated by the pandemic. The and role of employers has kind of changed. You know, they were having to educate their employees. And so what does that look like? You know, you talk about learning velocity and now a lot of these companies are putting in workplace educational programs to actually make sure that their employees have the skills and they're taking that burden on themselves. So what are you seeing within these companies and how are they addressing that need to educate their employees? Not a lot that's getting me excited, if I'm honest. I'd love you to tell me the companies that are really taking on that burden of educating their people because it's crickets when I ask around to the people I know, hey, is your company really aware of that? What the biggest knee-jerk reaction, well, I'm seeing a lot of strange knee-jerk reactions by companies today, but the first one is we got a recruiting problem, limited supply, people are quitting, we can't find the people we need, we can't hold on to the people we need, we can't find the skills that we need. And my response to that is, well, I don't think you have a recruiting problem. And they go, well, yeah, we, yeah, we do, we can't find the people. I said, well, you've got an attrition problem. But you've known for a while that people are not going to stay in companies longer. This is the part that, that was really helps me get into the heads of, of leaders. You say, hey, are people leaving your company faster than ever? Yep. Do you think it's going to change in the future? Nope. Okay, so what are you doing about that? What you're doing is you're pretending it's not happening. You're not changing how you design work to expect people to leave. I was in Atlanta last week. I met a head of manufacturing. He goes, Steve, it takes me six years to train someone to work at this printing press. And, I, and he goes, and then after seven years, they leave. <laughs> and I'm going, well, that's a design problem. That's not a recruiting problem. You need to re-engineer that job so it doesn't take you six years for someone to do that. Maybe it's a shared job. Maybe it's something different. And I think we're seeing the in technology, and you guys have been working in the technology landscape. I mean, what I love about doing talent work in technology companies is the migration of appreciation and the acceptance of experimenting with culture is easier because that's how you build software. It's an A-B test. You try this, you try that, you see what works, you double down on it. And a lot of companies that are not, the DNA is not software development. It's like a foreign act to experiment. Oh, we can't do that. We've got to be in control. We got to have a one size fit all solution. And it doesn't work like that. And so a lot of the industries, let's take hospitality, are on their heels because they've never had to fight for talent before. They've never had to really get creative. And I didn't hire a single software engineer or technologist at LinkedIn in the four years I was there that didn't have three to five offers. And so in that domain, we have to be really competitive and, and really think about you know, why does someone want to work here? What's our value proposition? How are we different? And it's a really a cultural conversation, not a, oh, we need to raise the pay, if you will. So I'm seeing deer in the headlights right now, frankly. I wish I was seeing more. I do believe the future is exactly what you said, which is if you want to keep someone longer, you have to make it, make it more possible for them to leave, which means you make them better. And that's part of what I've tried to get across in my book, which is isn't the more honest 
conversation with an employee saying, I care about you for your whole future than only when you work for me? <laughs> Isn't that really what someone wants is a, a leader or a company or an organization that's got their back for their career? Because um, companies change, people change. No one can really believe that one organization is going to meet their needs for the entirety of their career. That's just silly. It doesn't work anymore like that uh, in most jobs, right? So um, anyway, so that's just how I think about it. I think the future will be that, and I was having a conversation uh, about this yesterday with a with the venture firm that's thinking about investing in a skill assessment company that they were looking at, and they asked me, asked me for my opinion. And I said, listen, in the world of skill and talent development, what I'm starting to see is most organizations have a training department that sits in HR. And when times get tough, that department gets laid off because we don't have the extra budget to, you know, bring in speakers. And training is moving from HR into the core, which is how fast you can learn, how quickly you can raise the skill level of your team is really your competitive advantage. And that's why I say in my book, I really feel we're not too far away from a world where recruiting is going to be based more on what you can learn than what you know. Because I know whatever business I'm in, it's going to be different tomorrow. So my success tomorrow is going to be based on how versatile my team is. And so I need to know that you can learn new stuff. And I don't know how much you guys have done recruiting in your day, but I'll tell you in the last 10 years that I've been recruiting a job description that you write with a hiring manager is valuable and accurate for about two months. <laughs> so why are you hiring someone to do that? Why aren't you hiring someone to do what's after that? And that feels very uncomfortable for organizations that, well, I need the experience. I know. But that experience is only going to be valuable to you for a finite period. Don't you want to hire someone and be able to recognize someone who can learn and grow, right? And I think that's really, really a fundamental mind shift that we're struggling with right now because we're humans and we don't like all this change. And so we want to go back to what we know, right? And that's a big problem. Yeah. And as somebody who is young like myself, I'm just now getting started in the tech and software field. And when I hear you say you need to be somebody who's willing to learn and willing to be trained, what kind of things should I be very self-aware of in myself or trying to foster in myself to be somebody who can be trained and learn very easily? Like what, what are you trying to spot in those people when you're recruiting uh, that you can tell, hey, this is somebody who's going to be able to come on and, and learn quickly? Is it mostly on that individual or is it a lot of the processes in the business or is it a mixture of both? Well, first, I'd just like to say this is a beautiful moment because you asking me that question uh, tells me that you're curious, that you're listening to what I'm saying and that you're going ahead. Right? I gave you some information and you immediately thought, okay, well, if that's true, then what next? And that's sort of like I'm seeing that in action as someone who's interviewed more people than, than I can count. I mean, we're talking about, let me speak in generalities, which is, feels unsatisfying, and then I'll get to some more specifics. I'm looking for curiosity. I'm looking for a growth mindset. I'm looking for someone who's a self-study and doesn't need to be told what to learn. I'm looking for someone who, you know, more often than not has created something from nothing or... You know, I've, I've got a, a friend who teach themselves how to take apart and put it back together like computers or technologies in their home. Like, why? Because I'm curious. That's why. You know, and so I want to see people take untraditional places. I look for people who've lived in different countries and different cultures and different experiences. You know, I, I had a really interesting sort of uh, conversation slash debate with someone the other day where I said, I believe that I learned more how to be a great human resource executive in the gymnasium, my university than I did in the library because my profession today is all about seeing how people handle different situations and matching people 
and coaches and teams well together. And that was all about just the curiosity of like, hey, how do you handle loss? How do you handle defeat? How do you handle being behind in a game? How do you handle victory? How do you handle someone on your team that you don't like playing with, but you got to play with them nice to win? Like, I want to understand all that stuff just because I'm super, super curious. So I think we're going to we're going to get better at this in the future. And more importantly to your question, I think we need to deliver work to our employees or design work so the people are learning while they're adding value. This is where I think we've got training wrong. Training, we think, oh, we've got to bring in a speaker, a teacher, uh, someone, an expert to, to tell us what to do. I don't think that is the optimal way. I think it's, I want to give you a new assignment, a new project. I want you to work on this different team for a couple of weeks. I want you to go to this country and tackle this project and see how they approach technical problems differently than you do. And that is highly, highly energy producing. And, and that's why I think, you know, I worked at LinkedIn. And this is a you know a story that not a lot of people will pay attention to because they're so wrapped up in you have to be somewhere a long time before I trust you and you add value. And if you're not here a long time, company's going to fail. The median tenure the entire time I was at LinkedIn was nine months. Nine months. We doubled the staff every year. So I'm like, and afterwards, it took me years to like, well, how did we do that? Because everyone just got here. Like they just figured out where the free food was and. And we doubled revenue, and it wasn't because the product was easy or the business was simple. It wasn't. It was a very complicated business, more complicated than any other social network, including Google's model, which is highly advertising revenue-driven. Right? We've got like an advertising business. We've got a sales business. We've got a recruiting business. We've got the free business because we want you to use the site. And we had all kinds of different models, and it was really hard. And what was happening was my senior leaders were recruiting, and their lieutenants were being asked to be the interim heads of their organizations and they're just fired up and on paper they weren't qualified to do those jobs and so but and that's where sort of i'm leaning this is probably the next book i want to write which is i really saw talent trump experience time and time and time again and that's why i'm trying to help people understand like you give something maybe ahead or more of what someone should be able to do i think you're going to be shocked but no 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 we gotta i gotta see the experience or i can't hire you yeah, but who? when have you been most excited in your career journey? Doing the same thing five years or taking on something new? You know, and that, that's why I think people are flocking to startup land. That's why I think big companies, and I talk about this in my book, are trying to look and present themselves to candidates like they're a startup. Like, hey, we're a startup. No, you've got 50,000 people. Like, how can you be a startup? Oh, yeah, we're lean and nimble and, you know, we move fast and we got free Coke over there. Like, no, no, that's not a startup. Like... Okay, can I make a decision just to do this in my job? No, you can't. You need to ask six people for permission to have six meetings before we can even think that we could give you the responsibility to make that. Okay. Uh, so we got a, we got a ways to go, but I'm encouraged, you know, and I think this, uh, you know, back to circling around to your question around. So being able to identify that and to build it into your organization so you're unlocking that, I think it's going to be a real, call it the holy grail of talent in the future. An organization that I see doing that really well, um, actually, an employee of theirs is a past guest of ours, is, is Facebook. So when this employee was first interviewing at Facebook and got the offer, they have their developers go and, and try working with all these different teams, with the Instagram team, with the Oculus team, you know, all of these different things that Facebook has their hands in. And I think that's a really great model to get your hands in all sorts of different things, because when it comes to curiosity, 
you know, you might not know what's really going to spark your curiosity. So getting to kind of taste all those different things, I think is a great model. And I think startups are really good at that as well. Like the startup I'm at right now, I wear all sorts of different hats. I might've been hired Mm -hmm. for sales, but I get some marketing experience. I get some customer service experience and then kind of the culmination of all that. I'm learning way more than I would at some of these, some of these larger companies. So I, that's I right. Really and I, I think that that environment is a great, I hope the listeners really pay attention to what you just said. That's a very, very powerful point. And that's sort of where I would like my kids to go is an environment where you can taste it. You go to the, call it a career buffet table, right? I want to try this, try this, yep. try this. Cause you don't know yet. Do I like deeply analytical work? Do I like working on teams with like lots of people owning lots of pieces? Do I like fast deadlines? Do I like long deadlines? Do I like, be working for a Japanese run organization to like working for an organization that's going through an acquisition or an organization that's going down, going up hyper growth. There's so many different combinations. And I think in the early years, you shouldn't be worried about your title, your money, just be worried about, am I building my network? Am I learning a lot? So I can get closer to understanding two really important things. What am I really good at? What does the market really value for me? And what environment produces great joy for me? You know, loud environments, fast-paced environments, environments where nobody talks to anyone and no one bothers me, like whatever. Like we all are wired differently. Uh, And that's such a great point that you make. And I think it's why a lot of people are drawn to startups in addition to the perception that there's not a lot of rules blocking me. There's open space where I can create, right? And that's a a beautiful thing. So we're speaking of environments, we're in this new remote work reality. And people are wanting to work in their home because it's a comfortable environment, but people also want kind of that in-person, you know, hybrid model. What's your take on, you know, remote work going forward? Because I think it's a, a very uh, heated debate in a lot of circles right now on whether or not that is the right move. You know, I think it's a mixture of both, but what is your take on remote work? My take on it is we are in the very, very early phases of building our confidence uh, as a society that we can create value remotely. We don't know yet that we can. We don't. And every organization is going to have to figure that out. So it's one big experiment on a scale we've never seen before. And by the way, I don't agree with you that everyone likes to work from home. I think everyone likes to not work in the office. <laughs> right? So what, because what most office? people are not in homes that have space. Look what happened yeah. to the residential real estate market. It exploded. I was like, and, and Shane and I are like, what is going on? And Shane's like, because nobody can fit in their house anymore. They need a bigger house. So, and I was talking to my tax planner a few months ago, because sure enough, I don't have a, you know, enough space in my house. And my kids are like, dad, pipe down, get off the Zoom. We got a game, you know, hurry up. You're sucking up all the Wi-Fi. We have new dimensions that we have to take on. And so I think what people are saying is, yeah, they're voting that I like my autonomy, my freedom, and my independence. And the big part of this is not just that. Overlay that with my personal definition of my personal health and safety in the work environment matters now. Never you, you never you needed to care about it. It never mattered to you. It didn't matter to me. But if you say, Evan, you got to come in for a meeting and with 25 people next week, you're going to, mm-mm, no, I'm not because I'm taking care of my mom and she's got on this immunocompromised medication, not doing that. Um, that never was even part of the conversation. So we've got, I think, this this reality where our uh, circumstances are going to have to force us to personalize understanding each other more to make this work. And that is going to be difficult for lots and lots of organizations. Like, didn't have to take the time to do that, didn't have to worry about that, didn't have to think about that. 
we haven't even talked about, you know, vaccination and what your policy is on that. And that's sort of like, there's a, it's like a holy war in some organizations that have teams in California and Texas, <laughs> you know, good luck figuring that out. Uh, one team wants one thing, one team wants another. And so, you know, I see it's going to be a little bit messy for a while. Uh, I do think, and, and here, here's another example. When you say to somebody, hey, I want to work hybrid, that's like telling a waiter at a restaurant when they ask you what you'd like to order, you say, I'd like some food. That's what I'd like. Hmm. Well, hot food, cold food, chicken, Italian, Mexican, Chinese, Mediterranean. There's so many iterations of hybrid. What day a week? Where? Overlapping with who? How many times a week? What hours? Right? And so it's what I love is it's really crushing our traditional notions of, well, where did nine to five come from? You know, came from the industrial age. Where did summer vacation come from? The agrarian economy where kids needed to work harvesting the crops. Like, and that's the world that we're building around right now. And it doesn't make sense, right? And so, you know, we used to, um, when we faced a hard time when the dot-com bubble burst or, or when we had second mortgage crisis in 2008, the organizations I was, uh, I was in at the time were like, man, we're going to have to let people go. How are we going to deal? We're going to have to cut expenses because, you know, revenue's down. And so sometimes uh, we would say, we're going to do a forced shutdown. Everyone's not going to come to the office. We're going to close the office for whether it was like the 4th of July week in the U.S. or, or uh, they have Canada Day, similar time frame around that in, in Canada when I was up there. Or you take the holidays and say, okay, from, you know, uh, week before Christmas till, you know, January 2nd, all offices are closed. And that's sort of an interesting approach where if you let people know you're doing that and they plan for it, you come back to the office and there's not an inbox of, you know, tons of emails you got to catch up on. So those are, there are creative ways that I think that we need to take advantage of that, that we're just, they're sitting there, but we're still stuck wanting to go back to the way it used to be. So you said it's an experiment. And what I'm curious about is, you know, there was a domino effect. You had major companies say, we're going remote for the future indefinitely. And, mm -hmm. you know, that's a big decision to make. Was that made on data? Was that necessity? What were they making that decision based off of? It's, if it's an experiment, then how can they say, you know, we're doing this indefinitely. We're making this big decision company across the company. What were they making those decisions based off of? Um, well, I wouldn't have made that decision if I was in the room. I'll tell you that right now. Mm -hmm. Because I would say, how do we know that we can create better value that way? I think yeah. what they were doing, I'm just, just hypothesizing, uh, Okta was one, right? Who are some of the other ones that you guys remember? So, well, from now on, we're all remote. Mostly in the tech space, right? Um, I think what they're what they're playing on is our employees feel safer in this environment. The initial indicators are that we're going to have a bigger market for uh, opportunity to attract talent with that model because it seems to be one that people are really expecting and wanting more. So let's just do it. Just rip the Band-Aid off and let's make that move. And I thought like, mm, you know, I'm an extrovert. I'd like to hug and high-five people. I don't want to be home all the time. I don't want to be having my kids say, when are you going to get off that dumb webinar and make me breakfast? You know, like I like a little bit of distance and I like, you know, uh, I have this with my, with my wife. Like I'm, I'm at home. She's like, starts talking to me. I'm like, sweetheart, I'm in the middle of something right now. I know I'm at home. I'm here at the kitchen table, but I'm working on something really important. Can it wait a little bit? And it's just, she's not thinking I'm working because I'm home. And I love the interaction. I love being there, but it's it's hard, you know, uh, to to see that. So so that's how I see, you know, this 
this playing out. But I think that's what the companies that made the call early are trying to say, okay, we're going to skate to where we think the puck's going to be. Okay, we think it's going to be more like this, and we think we're going to be able to attract more people if we just pull it and show we're a market leader. We're not going to wait and benchmark, right? Yeah. yeah. And so only history founder. will tell where that was a smart move, right? For sure, for sure. And, and I'm building a startup right now, and as of right now, you know, we're, remote, we're a remote company. And the biggest question in my head going forward is I think it's essential for a startup to build a culture that people want to be a part of, that accelerates everybody's growth, that makes people want to be passionate and work extra hours if they want to. Uh, how can a startup or any business, for a matter of fact, like in the remote work world, begin to do and build culture? That's a great question. And I literally was having coffee with a startup founder yesterday. And he is big business, traditionalist in his thinking. He is a CEO of a company that is, has developers in, in Sydney and Melbourne and London. He's never met him in person. He's not allowed to go to Australia yet, I don't think. <laughs> uh, they're not welcoming people in there yet due to their COVID challenges. And so he asked me, he's like, how do I think about this? He goes, I want a really tight culture. That's what I'm used to. That's how we you know, we go the extra mile for each other. And I said to him, I said, listen, here's some, here's, I want you to reframe this. I said, do you think you're ever going to be back together? He said, nope. I said, okay, well, then it's on you to think about how do I build to optimize for two things in particular that all the research tells us are important for any organization to be high performing. The team has to have high elements of trust and psychological safety. So how do you do that on a black screen like we're interacting with right now, right? Like you guys aren't as close to the camera as I am. I can't read your body language that great. It's a little bit, it's throwing me off a little bit. Now, if I hadn't worked in Asia where body language means nothing, if you're Western trained in body language, I, uh, that would probably irritate me, but I can't really tell. Like, are they laughing at my jokes or are they, you know, they are they wincing when I say something that's going to be a cue to me that I just stepped in something that I shouldn't have stepped in? Like, I don't know that. So it's, it's going to be longer for us. Now, on the other side of that, I've always worked in organizations where one or two or three members of a team are in some other time zone in some other part of the world, and they can't always make the meeting. And when they do, they don't feel a part of it. And that's just been, the playing field's just been leveled for them. They're just like, oh yeah, now all y'all got to deal with what I had to deal with all that time. And that's a beautiful thing. Or said another way, maybe we're going to have an opportunity to really diminish unconscious bias in hiring, right? Um, and, and more and more organizations are saying, turn off the computer until we've made you an offer. Like, we don't want to see what you look like. And that's like, what? You know, like, yeah, because it's the content of who you are and what you can do that matters to us, not the, you know, with the package that you're wrapped in, right? So I think there's as many uh, places that are upside but we're not talking about those as much as we're talking about, oh, we used to have the water cooler. We used to hang out. We used to do that. I'll, t I'll share a story with you because it's really uh, interesting and insightful about appreciating the challenges that we're in today. I had a middle management team of a very high profile Fortune 500 company hire me to help coach them on how to negotiate with their executives because the executives are saying, come back to work. And the middle management's like, if we do that, our people will quit and we'll quit. We don't want to do it. We don't think we need to do it. We've been more productive when we've been working remotely. Okay. So I thought about it and I said, well, why do you think your leadership saying that? I said, because I think it's because you have a beautiful building with all these amenities and all these, 
you know, gym perks and free food and on-site childcare and gorgeous facilities. And when that's stripped away, they don't have that asset to attract and keep you. And so they're worried they're going to be neutered from something that was a key part of how they were able to hire. And they're worried that it's no one is just you and me. This is our culture right now. You and me. There's no stuff on the wall, free food, free snacks, none of that. It's just you and me. And that was scary, I think, for their senior leadership. I said, so if you want to try to negotiate something different, you got to understand what they're afraid of, right? And if you tell them, our people are going to leave if we do this. You're trying to solve for the same thing, but you think the answer is different than we do, right? So just, it's really, really interesting. Yeah, and uh, something that I think is a really interesting dynamic that we're seeing now that people can kind of work where they want is states where people might not have considered a place to live that have really low cost of living, uh, like places like Kentucky, are now becoming or trying to establish themselves as places that are great for remote workers. So I know you mostly deal with companies that are trying to figure out uh, how to deal with remote work, but what about for entities like an entire state? What can they be doing to try and position themselves as a place that's good for remote employees and and to attract those types of people to come and live there and, and work remotely from there? That's a really great question. I was just in Durango, Colorado a few weeks ago, and the business leaders there are terrified. They're terrified because a bunch of digital nomads came in, drove the housing prices up. Teachers, firemen, policemen, waiters, cooks, chefs can't afford to live there anymore. Jacked up their economy. They've got a beautiful environment. Then all the companies that have professional services that people can work from home, they're terrified because their staff's getting called from people all over because the comfort level of managing people remotely just went up. So they're like, what? And I say, what are you worried about? I said, you, the same pool just opened up, to you, opened up for you. You're worried you can't hire someone remotely. You're worried that you can't get the same level of performance if you can't see them. I said, you're going to have to get comfortable with that. And, and and here's the here's the thing, you know, that I would say if I was in Kentucky and say, okay, what opportunity do we have right now that the pandemic has presented to us? And I think the great resignation that people are calling, I call it the great career migration. We've had a moment in time, which is the greatest opportunity of our lifetimes to start, hit pause, look at our circumstances differently, and we're making different choices. I like being with my family for dinner every day. I don't miss the commute. I like having the freedom to shop, get a haircut, do whatever I need to do when I want to do it. I don't miss that. And I'm going to take decisions. So I think it's a quality of life thing. I think a lot of people said, I don't need all the stuff I have. I didn't need that big house with a big commute and the big cars because I don't have a social setting to brag about it anymore. <laughs> like that's, you know, we're not able to hang out so much. So what, what value is that to me? And these other things are more important. You know, that's a moment in time. And so... You know, people, people want affordable housing. I think people want good education for their kids. They want to raise their kids in a good place. Um, and it just kind of depends on where you are on your journey. You know, there was a really interesting article around digital nomads that came out a few months ago. Shane and I were talking about it on our own podcast around this person said, you know, digital nomads all great until you like it until it's not. Until like you miss traveling, you miss being connected to nothing, <laughs> you know, you want to have rhythm, you want to go back to your roots. And I think I would play up the assets that I have around opportunity. Listen, every part of the world wants to be the next Silicon Valley. Everyone does. You know, it. I live here. It's, I can't wait to leave. <laughs> you know? It is a career candy store. I had, I drank from the fountain. It was awesome. 
I don't want my kids to 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 grow up here. Is disproportionate wealth. There's just a huge divide between the haves and the have-nots. Is like, I told my kids, if you ever come home and say, "How come Jimmy's got a Tesla and I don't even have a car?" I said, "You you will be sleeping out of this house. Like this is not normal. It's weird." Um, and uh, but the roots of Silicon Valley, for my money, the the beauty of the the innovation and creativity that's come out of this has come because people share ideas and people move around a lot. And I don't think it's a coincidence that the region of the world that has the most successful innovation, most valued companies is also the same part of the world where people move around the most because ideas are shared and networks are grown and that's a powerful thing. So if I'm building a community that I want to be vibrant and vital in the future of technology, I'm building one where it's not about the VCs or the investment dollars. That's important. It's around What's more valuable? Who owns the idea or the idea? And iterating on that. And that's how I think Silicon Valley is, is enjoyed the success it has. Just a culture of people just move. And building jobs and companies that can tolerate that movement. So we'll see. You know, I'm curious if Business Insider keeps publishing that on a monthly basis, what, how that's going <laughs> to how that's going to look. You know, I, I read somewhere, someone told me recently that uh, Ford is like doubling down on some big electric car bets in your neighborhood. So I, I hope that leads to it leads to good things, but that you don't get priced out of your your housing market, you know? Yeah, literally yeah. in my neighborhood. It's in my hometown. Which oh, is wow. Cool. That's exciting. Yeah. 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 Uh, so we always like to end uh, this podcast on like looking forward, kind of generally looking forward in the future. And I want to start with uh, the negative side of it. What scares you about the future? You know, you've got an inside look into a lot of different businesses. Uh, what What is scaring you out in the world right now when it comes to employers and employees? Uh, what scares me is human nature. Uh, what scares me is that during a crisis and when we're afraid and when we're fearful, we're under stress, we revert back to what we know. And it's, you know, the age-old uh, fear of change. And I feel like that is a going to be a slow death ride, slow death march, um, many people right now tell me I have a recruiting problem, I have a recruiting problem, I have a recruiting problem. We talked about this earlier. It's like, no, you don't. You do not have a recruiting problem. You have a problem wrapping your head around, I got to create value in a different way with different resources and different portfolio of talent. And maybe it's not full-time people. Maybe it's contractors and temps or you know developer teams in different parts of the world. Maybe that's what's needed or maybe the schedules need to change. So that's that that and it's not it doesn't make me like upset or really terrified it's a just a, a it's making me sad that we are going to miss an opportunity a lot of businesses are just going to revert back to what they know now here we are 19 months into the pandemic as the recording of this and most businesses are finally hitting for the first time a point where they go hmm i guess we're not going back to the way we were i guess we're going to have to start it's holding. It's, we've been holding off on those investments and in, you know new product, new tech, new buildings. I guess we're going to have to start making them. I don't think it's an accident that some of these big decisions in your neighborhood just happened because we're like, oh, we're going to just have to go for it and hope that we know how to weather the uncertainty. Um, and then some organizations on the other end have said things like, okay, every team can decide where they work and how they want to work, or you know, we're all going to be remote from now on. That's fine. Um, so we don't know the right path yet, but that probably worries me the most. And then on the flip side of that, what gets you excited about the future is you're seeing all that's going on right now. That it's the greatest opportunity of our lifetimes since World War II, I think probably, uh, which was before my lifetime, but it's the greatest opportunity of our lifetime in this society for us to rebuild something better, to, to not go back to the norms that weren't inclusive 
that weren't uh, appreciating, you know, being able to create differently. And um, that that we can really, I feel like today we know more about our coworkers than any time in history. We have to. I'm like, I'm zooming in your house. I see what's going on. I see your crappy decor style. I see your dog barking or whatever, you know, and you see equally, you see mine. And that's leading to more human connection. And I think, um, you know, there's so many other things I could have done. There more stuff worries me than, than gets me excited. But the other, the other part is I think the future is about more human connection and it's only going to be our proclivity. I think our seductiveness of technology that's going to potentially get in our way of seeing, uh, of losing sight of the fact that technology should be here to make our lives richer and more beautiful, but it doesn't feel like that right now. It feels like we're falling behind and technology's taken over. And I just email is the greatest example of that. Like it's not made my life better at all. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I think I, sure. I'm hopeful that we can use this moment to sort of create better technology that del- delivers a, a more beautiful quality of life. Uh, for all of us. Yeah. I think we're going through the growing pains of that right now, but you kind of have to have that period of uncomfortableness, if that's a word. Uh, you got to get yeah. through that and then come out the other side and hopefully have these new ideas kind of emerge with that. But Steve, thank you so much for coming on here. This is an episode that I think is really well-timed. I actually just spoke on a panel um, talking about remote work in Kentucky and, and referenced your book several times. I oh, got a couple you. different perspectives from uh, from that book. So I want to give you a second to kind of talk about that book before we let you go. Tell us where listeners can find that and, and give us a little bit of the gist of what's in that book as well. Yeah. Thank you again for the opportunity. It's been really fun and I hope we get another chance to do this because I feel the world of work's changing so fast. We may need to do like quarterly updates on this, but uh, the name of the book is Workwake. Uh, just came out on August 3rd. It's available anywhere books are sold and almost every form. We're having it translated into Spanish as we speak and uh, Audible, digital, hardcover, and yeah, super excited about it. Uh, it's really around trying to help build a better model of work, and and uh, subtitle is, you know, embracing the aftershocks of COVID-19 to create a better model of working. So I think I'm an optimist. Uh, I may have come across a little pessimistic today, but I'm definitely an optimist, and I think we got a great chance to make it better, and so that's why I wrote the book. Awesome. And one last thing, I know you're pretty active on TikTok. I've seen some of your content that you put out. Uh, plug plug some of the other places people can find you for your content uh, aside from the book you put out. Sure. Yeah. I uh, I, did, I have a TikTok channel. I'm trying to trying to grow it. It's fun. I have a series there called True Stories from Corporate America. Uh, it was funny, you guys. I was on a uh, a client briefing call the other day. And they were terrified of how behind their company was that they were going to become one of my TikToks. So they made me sign a waiver saying I wouldn't make a TikTok, even to change their name and, and protect them. And I thought, wow, this is, I'm really getting some share of voice here, you know. But there's Steve Cadigan, uh, my TikTok channel is in my name, stevecadigan.com. Uh, you could find me on LinkedIn. I hear it's a pretty good platform. I'm pretty responsive. And if you're struggling or your leadership's struggling and you're like, man, I wish they, I wish they would think like Steve, well, invite me in. I will help, you know, do the three stooges strategy and like smash heads together. Uh, I'm a provoker and a provocateur and I really love doing that. So if, if you could benefit from that, I'm, I'm your guy. So yeah, thanks you guys. Thanks. Thanks again for having me. Wonderful. It's been great. Thanks so much, Steve. 